Well, we are back in the Gospel of Luke today. That's what we're going to be. And uh, we've already read the text during our worship time, and so uh, why, don't we, um, why don't we pray and uh, we'll get started today, okay? Let's pray together one more time. Well, Father, um, truly, Lord, it is such a glorious thing to remember the Lord Jesus and to remember all that He did. Father, we're so in awe of Him, and if we are not, Lord, in awe of Your Son, may You capture our hearts today by the example that He gave us, Father, by the, the humility and the, um, the condescension, Lord, that He underwent to do what You sent Him to do, as the Gospel of John says that he came, he took on flesh so that we might behold his glory, glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of that grace and that truth today, Lord. Father, we celebrate the birth of your Son, Lord, not because it's a national holiday, Lord, but because it is a theme and a doctrine and it is a truth that has forever altered the lives of your people and has altered the life of humanity in one way or another. And so, God, we just simply recognize the infinite impact of your Son. And God, help us to know him. Help us to forsake all things, to pursue him. Help us to render everything that we are able to do as rubbish, Lord, so that we may be found in him as Paul says in Philippians 3. And so, God, I pray that you would lift your son up before us today and help us to see the majesty of his person and his work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this week, you know, I, I spoke with, a, um, I spoke with a, a publishing agent. Wow, it's kind of amazing. I've never spoken to a publishing agent before. Uh, there's a book that I'm, another book I'm trying to publish, and she's trying to help me publish that book. And, uh, you know, I was just uh, uh, learning from her, really, but that in the publishing world, you know, you have to, um, you have to write in a way that people are going to be interested, you know. Uh, there are certain do's and don'ts in the publishing world. If you want your book to be read widely, you want a lot of people to like it, uh, you know, you don't, you're not going to have a lot of Greek in it, okay? You're not going to have a lot of Hebrew and syntax and exegesis, and it can't be a whole lot of dense theology, you know, it's got to be a lot of stories. The first, almost the first question that uh, the publishing agent asked me is, do you use a lot of illustrations? I said, oh, n- not really. I don't even do that during my sermons, you know. Uh, this is actually a, 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 a new thing for me, just even me talking about this, right? But uh, I'm trying to grow in that. But I thought, you know, of course, because people expect, you know, a certain... Uh, a certain relevance to the story. They want to be able to identify it with it. They want it to be applicable for the whole masses of humanity. People want to be able to relate to what you're saying. And they want, to, they want a, a, a topic or a theme or an idea. They want a book that is, uh, uh, that is something that everyone can relate to and everyone can appreciate and everybody can agree with. Um, but you know, the birth of Christ is not like that. The story of the incarnation is anything but that. And as a matter of fact, in the first century, this account of how Jesus came into the world was not popular 
Uh, he, this story wouldn't have made it to the you know, number one bestseller list or whatever, uh, the top ten, right? Uh, this is a story that, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is actually foolishness to those that are perishing. The idea that God would become a man, that He would humble Himself and condescend to leave His eternal glory and His infinite transcendent majesty and to come down and to deal with us, number one. Number two, to dwell among us, but to be born in the way and in the manner that Jesus was born is beyond belief. John MacArthur wrote a book, Hard to Believe, Speaking of the gospel, I would have entitled the book, if I could have influenced MacArthur, Impossible to Believe. It is not possible through human agency and human willing and human ingenuity to believe in the claims of the gospel. They're that fantastic, they're that hard to swallow, they're that difficult, and Jesus, as you know throughout His whole life, said some very, very hard things. So much so that just a few faithful men around him were tempted to leave. So that he asks them in John chapter 6, are you going to leave just like the others? And they said, where else shall we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so we come to the Son today because he does have the words of eternal life. He is eternal life. And so I want to talk about the majesty of our humble King the majesty of our humble king, and sort of just sort of open up the story here and look and Luke in three scenes. That's really the way it unfolds. There are three scenes of the birth of Christ that kind of unfold before us, but to see something of his majesty and to see something of his humility, I want to focus on three things. Number one, the adversity of his birth. The adversity of his birth. And that's the first seven verses. Now, it begins sort of with a historical note. You see that in verse 1? Now, in the days of the decree, that, and then in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. The, all the inhabited earth, by the way, doesn't mean China. <laughs> uh, back in those days when you said something like that, what you were saying is just the entire empire. Everyone within the, the, the reach of Rome, which to them seemed like Rome blanketed all of known civilization. So they made these sort of blanketed statements. He says this was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor in Syria. And so this is the background. And really what this historical situation represents is, is, is the oppression of the Roman Empire. You know that if you were a Jew in the first century, that was sort of the shadow that you lived under, almost like living under communism. You lived under the shadow of Rome, under the imperial oppression of the Caesars, who above everything wanted power, dominance. They wanted to be supreme. They wanted to govern all the world. They wanted to Hellenize the entire world and bring it under Roman rule and Roman culture and Roman language and Roman ways of thinking, philosophy, ethics, government, everything. They were truly an imperial force. But you know what's amazing about this? Is that the only reason that God even mentions people like Caesar is not because they were influential. It's not because they were powerful. The only reason God mentions people like Quirinius is not because he was a good governor. 
not because you know the Bible is trying to be relevant. The only reason that these men appear on the pages of Scripture is because they serve God's ends. They serve the purpose of God, and that's why they're in the book. So just like Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon or King Cyrus of the Persian Empire, Caesar is a pawn in the hand of God. It wasn't to show you how great Rome was. It's not to show you how powerful Caesar is. You know what it's for? It's to get one small, humble, unassuming, uh, 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 just, you know, the small family of Joseph and Mary and their son to Bethlehem. That's why this census came in. It wasn't for the purpose of taxation. That was Rome's purpose, but God's purpose was because they got to get, he has to get a small family from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that his word might be fulfilled. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. You know this verse. If you've been in the Bible for any length of time, this is one of the core prophecies of the Messiah. It says, Bethlehem Ephrathah. He says, too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Now, could this signify some sort of earthly king like David or Solomon or somebody like that? No, because look what it says. His going forth is from long ago, from the days of eternity. You see what God is doing? God is, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, summing up all things in Christ. That is the, the rising and falling of the nations of the earth. That's the, the reason for them. That's why Babylon came in. That's why the Persian Empire existed. And that's why Rome is here. It's to serve God's purpose to serve God's purpose, to bring this humble family to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. And you know, if you were uh, reading this in the first century, you knew who Caesar was. You're not ignorant of who Caesar is. Caesar is Augustus. His original name is Octavius. Octavius was his, 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 his name by birth, Gaius Octavius. But Augustus was a name that was given to him by the Roman Senate because he was such a great military leader. You know, they gave him a sort of a, a, of a nickname. They named him Augustus, which literally meant majestic one, the majestic one. You know, it's difficult for us because in our own day, though the politicians sometimes try to come across as a god or as a savior or as divine, right, messianic almost, uh, But uh, in those days, they took that to a different level. They actually pronounced the Caesars divine. Let me read you one small inscription. This is called the Marian inscription found way back in the first century. And listen to how it reads. It says, The divine Augustus Caesar, son of God, imperator, that is the Basically, the, 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 the owner, the, 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 the person who took care of land and sea. But listen to this phrase. Not only is he called the Son of God, but it also calls him the benefactor and the Savior of the whole world. These are inscriptions that you would read walking through the city of Rome. These are inscriptions that the people in the Roman Empire, they were accustomed to this. 
You know the story of the Caesars. They would go through the different provinces and the different regions around Rome, and they would be carrying idols of uh, statues and images of the emperor, and you would, have to be, uh, you would have to be forced to worship that image, and you would be forced to worship that image, and if not, you could die if you refused. Many Christians did die because they refused to hail Caesar as Lord. But there is only one Lord, and that's what this whole story is about. But it just brings up the deep irony of it, doesn't it? That in the time when, this, when the true Lord, the true Savior, the truly majestic one is being born, He's not being born in the palaces of Rome, right? He's not born with pomp and prestige, and there's not a huge entourage of soldiers surrounding his birth, announcing his birth. His takes place in a different way. As a matter of fact, the whole life of Jesus is one, uh, 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 one tale of opposition after another. You remember Jesus faced opposition from, from obviously from conception, but then who can, who can forget the opposition that he would face with Herod when he slaughtered all the children in Ramah? Who can... Who can uh, who can forget the opposition that he is going to face at the, the hands of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the conspiracy of the high priest, Caiaphas, to have him killed, the Sanhedrin, the injustice that he would face at the hands of the Roman soldiers, and ultimately the betrayal that he would face from his own follower, Judas, the injustice of Pontius Pilate. Jesus always faced unspeakable and seemingly insurmountable odds. But you know what? There was something else guiding this little family from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It's not chance. It's not fate. It wasn't just, you know, uh, that circum- circumstances lined up. But it was the sovereign hand of God that brought him to Bethlehem. Another way you can see the hardship, the, at, the adversity that he faces through his family. You know, Jesus' family was a family on the run, angelic uh, angelic visions in the night would warn them, and off they go to some other town, some other land, fleeing for their lives. Joseph is told in this account here, Luke chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house. He was the house and the family of David in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child. Now, the interesting, the interesting thing about that is that for these taxation purposes, these senses, you know, men were required to be there, but women were not. And it just sort of reinforces the truth that Mary was real close to, uh, to, to her delivery time. Uh, look at verse 7. She gave birth to her first son. She wrapped him, oh, excuse me, not verse 7, but, but earlier in, in the verse where it says, uh, verse 6, it says, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And so for her, she couldn't have stayed back in Nazareth. She had to come. But could you imagine traveling? I mean, Nazareth to Bethlehem is some distance. That's a journey. That's not just jump in your car and go for a half-hour drive on the toll road. That's a journey. You're, you know, that's, that's going through, through treacherous terrain. That's going through all sorts of dangers. You know, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 11, dangers of robbers. I mean, the ancient world was a brutal place. 
And so uh, uh, Joseph would not have brought his wife unless he absolutely had to. Unless he absolutely had to. But ultimately, the adversity is also seen in the humility of the birth of Christ himself. And this is verse 7. She gave birth to her first son. Notice it says her firstborn son, excuse me, her firstborn son, meaning that Mary had children after this. But listen to what it says. She wrapped him in cloths. It just says cloths. And this could have been anything, okay? What would you wrap your newborn baby in? Just some cloth that you find somewhere? Or would you want it to be sterile and clean and, 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 and right, fitting for a, a newborn? Uh, you wouldn't just wrap him in a cloth of some sort. And he laid him, she laid him in a manger. Now, obviously, now with our, you know, our postcards and our Christmas cards and our nativity scenes, right, the, the manger for us is a, a, a nice, quaint scene, kind of, you know, uh, something that, to decorate your home with or something like that. But in the first century, a manger was a filthy place. There's just no other way of putting it. It was a very dirty place. It was the place where all the travelers coming from all different directions would put their animals if, if, uh, if they didn't, if, you know, kind of the way you store your car in a car garage, they would put their horses, their mules, their cattle into these mangers that usually attached to an inn. And that obviously fits the context because it says that there was no room for them in the inn. Now, it would be one thing to tell you, you know, you're going to give birth, uh, in a Motel 6, that would make the women in here just cringe, right? <laughs> Give me a hospital that's nice and sterile and clean, and doctors and nurses and, you know, uh, 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 you know, where they can, you know, numb me up and, you know, all of that good stuff. But it wasn't that Jesus was born in a cheap motel or a cheap hotel. It's not even that Jesus was born outside in the parking lot somewhere. It was a lot lower than that. Dear friends, he was born in a filthy environment. He was born in a, in a place where you wouldn't even want to set foot. Now, obviously, what does this speak to us of? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, if you will. Philippians chapter 2, I can't say it any better than the Bible says it. And so I'll just read to you what the Bible says. This is a, just a, a reminder of the, of the extreme condescension of the Son of God. And what he did in his humility. Now we find it here. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6. It says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, that's not what he was after since he already had that. Verse 7 says, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. The word doulos obviously means slave. Literally, slave. It's not, a, you know, it's not a, a pretty picture. It's meant to be brutal and it's savage. It's, it's, it's very um, graphic even. It's, it's offensive. Being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, that is, as a mere man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. But you know, Jesus' first step of obedience is that he agreed to come in the first place. That he submitted himself to the will of the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28 and following. He submitted himself to the eternal redemptive plan of God that he would lay down his life to redeem his people. He was willing to do it. John 17, 
talks about that very thing, that he, that he accomplished the plan, the mission that God had sent him to do. And so we see really his majesty, we see his humility all at the same time. Another thing that shows this is the next part, the next scene, which is the angels, the angelic announcement of the good news. This is just amazing. You know, earlier on in the chapter, if you go back to Luke, chapter 1, verse 28, Mary is given this amazing pronouncement, right? This is what the angel Gabriel says to Mary. It says, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And then verse 32, he says, speaking of her son, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, could you imagine what was going through Mary's mind when she has to lay her son in a manger? (laughs) I thought he was going to get the throne of David. I thought he was going to be great. I thought he was going to be the Son of the Most High. And I'm laying him in a manger. I don't even have, there's not even a room for me at the local motel inn. Obviously, she might have been tempted to to wonder, to doubt, to question. How is this going to fulfill what the angel Gabriel revealed? And so the angels here, verses 8 through 14, reinforce the promises of God. The promises of God. Now also... Isn't it amazing that these angels appear to shepherds in a field? It just strikes me. And every time I visit Israel and we go to Bethlehem, I love just looking out on the, um, on the hills of Bethlehem because it's sort of green, beautiful hills covered in white stone. And I can just imagine the scene. You know, they have the church of, you know, where supposedly the, this announcement took place, you know, where the shepherds were. And just amazing to think being out there at night. And because it was around wintertime, the, the sky would have been especially dark, especially dark. And this is to whom the, the angels will come. They come to these unassuming shepherd men, the, these men of, of no repute, which shows us further his humility. Now, I want to show you different things about this appearance, though. I want to begin by showing you the glory of the messengers themselves. It's a glorious announcement, but first, the glory of the messengers themselves. We can so easily skip over this, this whole angelology. Have you ever studied angelology? It's the study of angels, okay? Angelology is fascinating. Too often we think in our minds of angels that are these Cupid-like figures that are flying around with halos over their head, you know, playing harps or something in the clouds. That's not what an angel is. Uh, I remember back at the first Psalm 119 conference that we did, Tim Challies came and he instructed us about the, the, the terrifying uh, 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 the terrifying nature of, of angels and cherubim and, and just uh, the, the, the association of judgment that came with the angels. And you know what? When you do a study of angels, there is one common theme that permeates all the accounts of the angels in the Bible, pretty much all of them, and that is the notion of fear. Fear. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 8 here. It says, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks at night, and the angel of the Lord suddenly, angel of, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened, terribly frightened. And that's what you find all over the Bible. It's amazing to see 
that in Exodus chapter 3, when the angel of the Lord appears to Moses, he is filled with fear. He was afraid, it says. He hid his face and did not want to look at the face of God. The angel of the Lord, probably an early Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Probably the same thing happened in Joshua chapter 5 when the angel of the Lord's armies appeared to him. What does Joshua do? He's gripped with reverence and fear. He removes the sandals off of his feet. He knew that he was before the presence of holiness. And also the angel of the Lord that stood before Gideon, he feared, filled with all sorts of fear. Mary, in chapter 1, is told, do not be afraid. Um, all over and in every place, the resurrection appearance is just fascinating. I was reading that account uh, a few months ago, and I was reminded, you know, we live in Texas. There's a lot of lightning in Texas, right? I kind of miss it. There hasn't been a whole lot lately. Um, lightning is fascinating, right? But you know what? You can't look at lightning for too long. Well, number one, because it only lasts about a second. But let's say it lasted for a long time. You could not, with your physical eye, look at lightning for too long. You would go blind. As a matter of fact, lightning uh, is hotter than the surface of the sun. It's so bright, right? It's difficult to look at. And uh, actually, the text in Matthew 28, verses 2 and 3, says that these an- this angel that appeared there at the, at the tomb of Jesus, he was shining like lightning. It's difficult to look upon him. The women probably didn't want, to, didn't want to look at him. It was so frightening. It was a spectacular event. I'm just trying to get you to see this was, no, this was no normal visitation. This was a terrifying event that took place. Terrible. And uh, also, their message is glorious. Their message was the message of a Savior, the salvation of the Savior, rather, and the sign of of the Savior. That's the glory of their message. So we have the glory of the messenger. We have the glory of their message. And listen to their message. uh, It goes on to say here in Luke 2, he says, do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And there is no better news than that. Dear friends, that a Savior has been born to us, to us who need salvation, who so desperately need redemption. You know, it's amazing to to see, but that there are so many similarities in this text uh, with what's found in Isaiah. If you look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, all the themes that are represented there are represented here. In Isaiah chapter 9, you have the presence of the Gentiles and the fact that salvation would go to them. And that's exactly what, Paul, what Luke is saying here. There's also the appearance of light that will dawn in a dark land, exactly what is being said here. There's also eschatological joy in Isaiah chapter 9, the joy, the gladness of the Lord, which is what Jesus brings here. There's also the deliverance of oppression Christ delivers us from our oppression, namely and mainly of sin, of sin. Also, in Isaiah's prophecy, there's also obviously the prophecy of the birth of a child, which we know is talking about Christ. Christ is also given divine titles in Isaiah chapter 
chapter uh, 9, verse 6, he's, be, he's, he's called everlasting father, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. And so to here, Jesus is called a savior. Jesus is called Christ, Messiah. And Jesus is called Lord. Now, can you imagine in the context of the first century reader reading about Caesar Augustus, who has all of those, all of those titles attributed to him? He is Lord, according to Rome. He's the Savior of the world. And he's like a Messiah figure who brings peace to all the world. It's just amazing, amazing. Uh, but it is, a, it is a glorious, glorious message because of the fact that this good news will be for all people. Now listen to what, listen to what it goes on to say. Listen to their, um, the sign and then the worship. It says, this sign will be for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in the manger. So they're going to go investigate that. And then in verse 13, this a sudden eruption of praise. This sudden eruption of praise. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's an amazing text. This is the, this is the message. This is the worship of heaven. This is the worship of heaven. In heaven, the, the angels are worshiping, surrounding the redemption of God, the salvation that He will bring. And you know what worship is? Today we worshiped, we sang hymns, we lifted our voices, hopefully we did it with a, a heart of true and, and, and sincere praise to God. But true worship is that which conforms to the worship of heaven. There is worship going on in heaven. And the worship of heaven is utterly God-centered. It is not man-centered. The worship of heaven is not about me, 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 me. How much I love the Lord and how much I need the Lord and how much I thirst for the Lord and how much I weep for the Lord. But it's all about God. The worship of heaven is all about His glory because when you're there, you're going to be so overwhelmed by the glory of God. In a sense, you will almost in an act of self-forgetfulness Focus all of your affections on Him, on Him. I said last week, heaven is not going to be a hall filled with mirrors where we're just going to be gazing at how beautiful we are or our family members or anything else. First and foremost, heaven will be all about the majestic glory of God. The majestic glory of God. Now, the thing that this reveals is this is the glory that Jesus left. This is, the, this is the environment of worship that Jesus left. He was the object of this praise. You remember what John says in John 17? He says, Lord, he's ready to return to the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. Before Jesus took on this incarnation that we're talking about, he was in, a, he was in an eternal habitation of glory. God the Father perfectly and infinitely and eternally delighting in the beauty and in the perfection of the Son. It's just amazing. That's why He's called the Son of His love. At the very bosom of God resides the Son, God the Father. And now let me just move quickly to the last thing, last thing. And that is there's a response to all of this. There's a response Let's read verses 15 through the end. He says, When the angels had gone away from them in, into heaven, the shepherds, <laughs> just amazing how quick that just goes by, huh? 
Angels went back into heaven. Wow, that's a sermon in and of itself. The shepherds began saying to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and to see this thing that has, been, that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and they found their way uh, to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. But, and now there's an intentional adversative there, a, a, a contrast. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. I hope you see that there's only two, two responses to this baby, this child, this infant laying in the manger. There's only two ways you're going to respond here. And I think that the first response, the response by those in general, verse 18, all who heard it wondered. And uh, that is... Uh, that is not a negative response, right? It's not as if it's to be equated with unbelief or rejection. However, as one, com one commentator pointed out, it is not the equivalent to faith. And that's why I think that little but in verse 19 is important. But Mary, and then I think but Mary and the shepherds sort of represent one collective group, those that respond with worship, not with wonder. It wasn't just to be amazed. The word wonder just means that you're, you're astonished at what's going on. But you know what's interesting is throughout the uh, Gospels, you see this. People come to Jesus for all kinds of reasons. They think he's cool. They think he's interesting. They think he's powerful. They see that he's got a big following. They come to him for all sorts of different reasons. And here we go, plugging ourselves right into the narrative here. What are you coming to Christ for? What, what interest do you have in the Son of God? Why are you interested in Jesus? Why are you interested in Christian things, the Bible, church? Why do you pray? Why do you seek God? Is it just for the things that Jesus can supply to you, give you, like those in the account of John's gospel after he fed 5,000 people miraculously. Oh, you know, just a little bit later, here you go. All the people are coming back to see Jesus again, of course. Jesus exposes their motive. He says in John 6, 26, he says, you, you seek me not because you saw signs, meaning signs that vindicate that he was the Messiah, but because you ate of the loaves. You see, that's why they were there. They were there, there to get a meal. Well, we're interested in what Jesus has to say, but primarily we want to feed our family, our kids, you know. Free meals, people will show up to that, okay? But why are you interested in Christ? Oh, to check our motives on this, on this Christmas season, to say, why do I even, what, what interest do I have in the Savior of the world? Is He my Savior? Do I hear the, the good news just like the shepherds? Is it truly good news to you? Is it glad tidings? Does it create great joy in Him? One way that you'll know is that you'll rejoice in Him and not just in the things He does for you. Your, rejoice, your, your joy will be rooted in who He is. 
His beauty, His majesty. He is the gift above all gifts. We, we, we worship the giver of the gift, not His gifts. We thank Him and praise Him for His gifts. But when He takes those gifts away, do, do we stop thanking Him? Do we stop worshiping Him? Do we stop honoring Him and glorifying Him because He is the one that is glorious? When God dries up all of your resources, do you forget where your resources come from? Do you forget that He is the one that gave them to you in the first place? Yet you ought to come to Him for those things and you ought to give glory to Him for those things. See, there's only two kinds of responses. And being, being astonished at Jesus is not enough. There are plenty of people that are interested in Jesus there are plenty of people that are just, you know, they, they, they think Jesus is fascinating. You know, there are a lot of scholars in hell right now. There's a lot of scholars, biblical scholars, who know Greek and Hebrew and Latin and Aramaic and theological German, and they're in hell right now because what they were interested in was theology. They weren't interested in God. They weren't interested in having a relationship with Christ, knowing Christ, loving Christ. I tell you what, love is the key, brothers and sisters. Love is the key. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, the Apostle Paul says this, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, he didn't say if anyone does not know a whole lot about Him, if anyone is not real theological about God, he said, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, he is anathema. He is cursed. And so today I just, I tell you what, this, the Christmas season is all about responding to the claims about Christ. Will we respond, as many do, simply with intrigue, with wonder? Or will we respond, and I know that most of you already have, Will you respond with worship? Because that is what He is worthy of. He is worthy of our worship, worthy of all of our praise, because He brings peace to all men, all those who will repent and put their faith and trust in Him. Amen?